what really makes us great at life and what really makes life worth living is not just infusing life with meaning, but recognizing the gratitude and the beauty in life being hard and difficult, in recognizing the victories that we have in life being hard and difficult. This week on the podcast, the person who I grew up wishing would magically appear in my closet and change my life by making me over, the iconic stylist Stacey London is here. She's best known as co-host of TLC's show, What Not to Wear. So maybe you, like me, grew up watching that and know her from there, or maybe you've been following her success ever since, but she's hosted and executive produced three seasons of another show. She's written two best-selling books. She's hosted a podcast about mental health that was in collaboration with the Crisis Text Line. And most recently, last year, she became founder and CEO of State of Metapause, a holistic line for women, which addresses symptoms associated with you guessed it, menopause and paramenopause. And while that might seem like a twist, it's really doing more of what she's been doing this entire time throughout her career, which as a stylist, and now she helps people who are struggling in some way silently to feel better and improve their self-esteem by, in this case, alleviating their external symptoms and removing the shame that surrounds them and having a conversation about menopause. She's honestly so cool. We talked about style and confidence and eating disorders and navigating career changes. And I think we talked about her finances. She gives me style advice. I learned so much about menopause and perimenopause, and I'm glad we're having this conversation here because hopefully it helps you to think about something maybe you haven't thought about before, or maybe you're in the midst of. We recorded this just last week. I was here in LA and we Zoomed. She was in New York. Without further ado, my conversation with the iconic Stacy London. Thank you so much for doing this. It's it's so nice to meet you. And I really loved preparing for this. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about several different topics around so many different things from style and wellness to menopause, which was really the first time I've learned about it prepping for this. And truly, this is such a thrill to have you here. So thank you for being here. Oh my God, Katie, thank you so much. And I I know that lots of people when they are podcast hosts will do some prep work and send some prep notes ahead of time. I've never seen notes as (laughs) thorough as yours. I was like, oh my God, 
You do your research wow. on your guests. Wow. <laughs> well, oh my goodness. Well, thank you for saying that. Coming from probably the most iconic host that I know, <laughs> that means so much to me. And it's funny, actually, it was just, I go to coffee with the same guys every morning. And my friend Tim, most mornings is like, you know, who are you interviewing today? And I told him about you. And we had this like nice conversation about what we were going to be talking about. And the other thing I said, I was like, well, you know, her publicist actually asked if she could see my notes, like an outline. It was so good for me because I've never had to give my notes to someone before. Like still, I'm sure this is like seething with typos, but usually it's like crossed off and things everywhere. So no one's ever seen my notes before you. <laughs> but oh this God, is what it is. I'm like a real diva, but it really is only so that I can come to a podcast prepared so that of course. I know the things that you want to talk about and reference. And I hate the idea of thinking of, of notes like before an interview as like cheating. It's always just a way for me to organize my thoughts, but not to prepare answers. I always feel like you want the conversation to be organic and for things to happen naturally. But I really believe in like understanding where your interviewer wants to take you. And I feel the same way too. Like almost like I shouldn't have notes. Like it somehow cheapens the live aspect of the conversation. But as you know, I have copious notes. Exactly the opposite. Yeah. Because, you know, I know that it will, and we will, we are right now, go off of the script or there'll be things we don't get to, or there'll be things I really wanted to put the penny in your jukebox for you to say that you said something different. But I think often I didn't even think that it was you that wanted to see them. Sometimes publicists want to see them. them. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually am honored that you looked like I was like, Oh, yeah, well, she doesn't care. But I see that like the publicists probably want to make sure we cover certain things. And it's an honor that we both care enough to prepare and want to make sure that we are prepared on both ends. So it's it's really earnestly lovely. <laughs> we have so much that I want to cover in a billion different areas. But one thing I'm dying to talk to you about is something you said in an interview years ago, actually, but it was a motto of yours that I really haven't stopped thinking about since I heard it. And it was in the context of taking anything too far. And your motto and learning lessons around that has become never trade what you want most for what you want now. Yeah. And Oh my God, I love that you brought up that quote. Yeah. And you you went on to say that you never get what you want most if you're constantly thinking about what you want now. And truly, Stacey, I haven't stopped thinking about that since Sunday when I heard it. So could you talk a little bit about it and and how it helps you and and how the context of how you learned that? Well, it is a quote that I read somewhere years ago. There's another quote that I always have in my back pocket that I read from a horoscope that said, be beautiful enough to pity the blind beholder. And so there are certain things that just resonate with me. And that idea of don't trade what you want most for what you want now really spoke to me because I think we live in an immediate gratification kind of world. And a lot of the times, the things that are best for us, that are our highest hopes for ourselves and our loved ones and our friends and our family are things that we are willing to trade in a moment of present weakness. And sometimes it does us a real disservice, right? It's like going on a shopping spree and instead of buying the one 
perfect thing that you set out to buy, you decide it's better to buy 50 cheap things, right? Then the one thing that you really wanted and planned for and saved for, or the idea that you want to just sleep on the couch rather than go to the gym, but you know that what you've been trying to do is strength train and build muscle and protect your bones, right? So this idea of there is always something about longevity and consistency and kind of constantly reframing and refocusing on the thing that you want most rather than the thing that's right in front of you. Sometimes the thing that's right in front of you blocks your bigger vision. Isn't it funny how there's certain things that you read somewhere or you just that that stick with you and just go right in? This was one of those for me that I, I think this will stick with me for a long time. And I'll think about how a behavior that feels pleasurable now could be disastrous later on or think about it like lots of quick fixes right i mean people are like oh i hate to put it in context of like don't eat the donut if you're trying to lose weight because i don't believe in that but that's the mentality is the sugar high really worth it if you want to keep your blood sugar stable it's just a question of perspective in some cases like in terms of menopause i'm all about the now i'm all about what do we do in the moment to improve the quality of our life when there are a lot of of symptoms that get in the way of that quality. And so that's kind of different, right? In in that respect, I would say that I believe that we are trying to get you to live in the now, be in the now, accept who you are and let go and grieve who you were. But look at this as an exciting new transition, natural transition that comes with its own host of issues and situations that you're going to kind of have to learn to navigate and control the narrative over. But that is something that you can do if you are living in the present. And certainly our products are meant to be about what can you do in the now to mitigate a symptom that is getting in the way of your day, right? Because like anything else, if we don't feel good, we can't look good. I spent my whole career as a stylist saying, look good, feel better, of course. But really, you can't feel better if you don't feel good. In menopause, with hormonal chaos being the culprit, there's a lot of things going on. There is tumult and chaos and, and, and upheaval within your hormones. And because our body is made of hormone receptors, lots of things feel different when you reach the menopause experience. And nobody, nobody, certainly nobody told me. So, you know, that was, that was one reason that I felt like it was, uh, that's, that's an example of where I feel like the now is incredibly important. Because the now and what you want most can be the same thing. And in this case, I think they have to be. In menopause, what we want most should be what we want right now. It is about reframing and reclaiming our time in the present, in middle age, and not look at it as some like draconian middle ages, right? What is the modern version of middle age? Because we are a different generation now that we're in our 40s and 60s than any generation before us. And I think Gen X has a, a huge responsibility to look at some of the things that we have been hiding or ignoring or afraid to, to share and be open about. I think, if anything, younger generations have certainly given us permission to start dismantling some of our own patriarchal systemic beliefs. To go back to that mantra, like most things, you know, it's a case by case basis uh -huh. and, and situation. And I think why it landed with me so much is it's about time. There's a trade off. And, and that's the part that is 
a challenge is when whenever we're doing anything, we're not doing something else, you know, and and there's a level of willpower with being able to choose. There are instances where the the donut or the cake to celebrate something is incredibly important and the trade-off of that is is different than, you know, when you're trying to get something done or I was thinking about it in terms of we only have so much capacity and willpower to make those instant gratification choices of, you know, something I struggle with lately is going to bed early enough or or as early as I want to. Like I just stay up later and that is a direct do the thing that I want to do that I, that is not the immediate gratification of staying up or working on this thing or do, you know, whatever. So tomorrow I can be, and sometimes it's like, no, I want to stay up. So you just have to really be gentle and, and, and patient with ourselves. But it's a lot easier to make that call in the morning when I'm, you know, have all of my willpower than it is in the evening going to sleep when the willpower dwindles. So it's just, yeah, it, it, it really helped me. And I, I liked the way you articulated that. Oh, I appreciate that. I, you know, I, I also think that just that idea of really what, what you're getting at, I think underneath all of that is, is the concept of, of self-awareness, right? Mm-hmm. How, where are we? How are we meeting our own needs? And how do we be self-sufficient? How do we be, you know, sort of self-motivated and successful in our own eyes? And I use that word very carefully because success looks different to everybody, right? There's no, there's no value judgment that I'm really trying to attach. I think success and failure are really different words for the same thing, which is experience. But it really does come down to like, what does work for you? What does matter more now or, or what you want most? And does what you want most to require more time than now. Maybe it doesn't. But but the idea is that you should be able to make those distinctions. You should be able to arrive at a place at a certain time in your life, certainly. I mean, this is one of the things I appreciate most about age where I am self-aware about the choices that I'm making. I am self-aware when I'm like, nope, I'm treating myself to whatever. Or nope, I'm working on my financial health. I'm saving right now, so I'm not going to buy those shoes. Making those choices and being aware and not beating yourself up after them, I think is is really one of the most important and healthy ways for us to live and, and be happy. Yeah. I mean, that's the best part of aging is we'll be most self-aware right before we die. Hopefully, <laughs> you know, I mean, and most experienced. You get a few years in there of like real self-awareness before you die so you can enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I almost think that people conflate menopause and aging quite a bit. They are not the same thing because menopause can really happen at any stage, particularly if you have surgical or medical menopause. Those don't happen necessarily between the chronological window of 40 and 60, which is when you would come to menopause as you age. But the idea that menopause is associated with aging, I think, is because it's sort of almost like the gateway to that natural transition of our lives. And there is a lot about middle age that is difficult to process, um, you know, based on sort of a, a whole set of patriarchal values. But but really, it's, it is very difficult when you start to feel like you look different or your body is changing or suddenly your emotional life feels a little bit unstable or unmoored in some way. And you also recognize in middle age that, you know, you're either dealing with childcare or empty nesting. On the other side of that, you've either got elder care or dying parents. And it really is a very tough 
embracing realization to come to terms with the fact that you're next. Uh, and what does that mean in terms of wh- what we're doing with our lives, right? And it would be one thing if we were dying at 60, we probably would never talk about menopause at all because who cares? You, you know, you'd have menopause, you'd die. But the idea that we know now so much about health and well-being, that we know that 10,000 to 12,000 to 30,000 steps a day is great for your heart and your cognitive health and your bone health. And we know that sitting and smoking are bad. We know that drinking too much is bad. We know know all of these things that have given us, you know, sleep hygiene, exercise, nutrition. We have so much more knowledge about what is going to extend our lifespans that we really have to consider menopause to be just a natural transition um, instead of this like kind of woe is me, end of life, everything is over, say goodbye to, you know, feeling beautiful or sexual or any of the things that we we should still feel at this age. We should still feel powerful. That power is going to morph into different forms like everything else we evolve. So as we age, we have to just reassess and think about what that looks like for us. I love how you talk about menopause and aging, but I want to back up a little bit for everyone listening and talk a little bit about why we're talking about menopause and how you got into doing, you know, the work that you're you're doing now having a background in style it's actually quite connected and i love how you talk about the link between style and wellness can you talk about how you see the connection between the two the entire time i was on the tv show what not to wear it was really never about the clothes right it was about what the clothes could do and style and television are wonderful bedmates because style is such a visual medium And to be able to watch somebody blossom in front of you was really part of what is so magnificent about transformation. It's very visceral. You can see it, but you can feel it. And in the same way that What Not to Wear was not about clothes, I almost feel like menopause is not about the products that we use to manage it. But it is about understanding that we can have agency over this, that we can manage things that feel hard, but aren't hopeless, right? And so for me, I actually don't even think of myself anymore as a stylist. I don't even think of myself necessarily as the CEO of a company. I really consider myself to be a self-esteemist. It is my job to raise your sense of self in the midst of any crisis of confidence that you might have. And that can be through style, that can be through education, that can be through product, that can be through anything that is going to help make the standard of your life feel improved and your sense of self-esteem improve. Yeah. And that that's what I could always get from your work, even thinking back to watching you on the show or on Oprah or on the Today Show. And then more recently preparing for this it's been you all along. You know what I mean? It really, it really shows that. And something I wrote down from an episode back in 2016, you were talking about how comparison is the thief of confidence, self-esteem, same thing. Mm -hmm. And you gave this exercise of looking at yourself in the mirror naked and you were giving the 
prompt to notice the parts that you like about yourself. And then you advised using that when you get dressed to camouflage the parts that you didn't love as much and bring attention to the parts that that you did. Can you talk about that exercise and how you yeah, came up with it? I do. In fact, I just talked about it last night at an event oh, that cool. I met. It's funny. I wrote about this in the first chapter of my book, The Truth About Style. And I said, one of the biggest problems I think that we have with personal style is that a lot of us have been at war with our own physicality for so long. Yeah, And it really is about learning to be slightly more detached from the emotions that you have about your body in order to be able to dress it really well, right? The more objective rather than subjective you can be, it makes a difference. And and I'll explain that. I think that when we look at ourselves, we are usually our worst self-critics, right? And one of the things that I used to hear all the time on What Not to Wear is I, I hate my body, that's why I wear black. Or I think I look better in black because black is slimming. Or I wear this long sweater so you can't see my tush, right? And the funny thing is, is I'm like, is that what you wanted me to understand? Is that what you wanted me to think that you wore this long sweater? So I would say, wow, what a great body you have. Because all I see is somebody trying to hide in a body they don't like. Transmission versus translation. What are you trying to say? And what are you actually saying? Again, personal style is communication without having to speak. And it really is very much in your control to decide what that narrative is. And, you know, people make decisions about you within three seconds. We are working with caveman prehistoric software. That's what our brains are. And we only know fight, flight, or freeze. We are going to make a judgment, not about whether you're dangerous, but whether or not we like your style, whether or not we think you're competent, things like that will still register. We just, we use judgment slightly differently now. It's not out of fear of our lives, but it is like, is this person somebody that I want to get to know? Is this somebody who annoys me. All of these things happen within three seconds. So there's a lot that you can do by paying attention to the kind of message that you're putting out even before you speak. And when I talk about standing in front of a mirror naked, you have to stand there and let all of that emotion that you feel, like whether it's sadness, joy, fury, confusion, All the things about your body that you feel, you have to stare at them. You have to stare at your body and all of your body parts until that emotion burns away, until you can utter a phrase like, I love my boobs, but I hate my tush without being elated or in pain about it, right? Just the idea is, huh, okay, I'm noticing. This is sort of like a meditative act, right? I'm noticing that I like my boobs, but I don't like my tush. And I want you to take that observation and say, how can I practically use that in the way that I present myself? Well, that means that I want to flatter my chest with the most flattering shape possible. But that doesn't mean that I want to hide what I don't like. I like to call it conscious camouflage. That is not anything to do with conscious uncoupling. Conscious camouflage means you know that you're trying to de-emphasize something that you don't love about your body, but it doesn't mean you're trying to hide it. It means that you really are using geometry and almost like color forms to figure out what shapes are going to be best on your body to use them to your best advantage. 
So you feel confident when you walk out the door because the great thing about style is that it is both reflective and deflective. And when you are not in a great space, use it as deflection, use it as armor, right? If you don't feel good, those are the days that I wear bright colors or prints or something to really lift myself up, lift my spirits. And that's my armor against whatever is going on in the world or in my day that does not feel good. And on the days where I feel great, then I want my fashion to reflect that, right? I want it to be a mirror of exactly what I'm feeling so that I can take that into the world. And in both ways, we're we're utilizing style to make our lives better, right? And to make ourselves feel comfortable and safe and beautiful in a way that has nothing to do with society's standards of any of those things, but really what we want for ourselves. What, what, you know, what, what, what puts a kick in your step? Is it your favorite pair of jeans? Is it wearing a great platform shoe? Is it, you know, having a cooling spray when you're having a hot flash? Is it being prepared? What does it feel like? And, and how do you kind of move towards that in your own life? And that you've made those decisions to kind of create the most beautiful life possible for yourself. I had an interesting experience last week that I think is relevant where what's great about this is that I came up with a, a lot of mentors in the eating disorder recovery space, right? And, mm-hmm. and one of them, Isabel Fox and Duke, she, would always say this thing about standards of beauty, right? Where she would, she taught me a lot of, of what I know about fat politics and about, she's been on the show multiple times, but about how standards of beauty have existed for millennia, right? But the standard of beauty to include thinness or to include a body shape that whatever's in vogue this decade is new, right? It's whatever's most difficult to attain and cost the most resources to attain. It has a lot to do with capitalism. You know, it's all these, all these broader things. And, and her perspective was she's still going to participate in standards of beauty, like painting her nails or dyeing her hair, or doing whatever, but she's not going to do anything self-harming anymore. And that was her getting out of her eating disorder. And, and that always stuck with me. And I feel like what you're talking about here isn't about like loving every aspect of your body or yourself because that's really hard and a losing battle because we're always going to change or trying to fit yourself to a standard of beauty that's... Yeah, exactly. I don't even think we need to say it's as much self-harm, right? I mean, of course, something like an eating disorder, and I have been there as well when I was a young person, that self-harm is truly like either some kind of deep emotion that is trying to get out or feelings of inadequacy and inferiority that can be so painful. One thing that I would say about that is that's very much an extreme, but even this idea of painting your nails or dyeing your hair, those are still conventions that women have been forced into. And you don't have to do those either. I think it is really deciding for yourself what that line is, because sometimes conformity just in and of itself can feel harmful. One of the regrets that I have about what not to wear, if I were to go back in time, or if I were to do a different kind of show, would be that I don't love the gotcha aspect of it that we had, that you were secretly nominated by friends and family, because it really was a little bit underhanded to secretly film people and then put them on the spot and say, are you in? You know? Yeah. (laughs) It's supposed to be kind of funny and entertaining and I get it. But the fact is, 
people really do struggle with a lot. And we are really our worst critics at all times. And this idea that we were sort of dictating to people what they should wear is very different than guiding somebody to their truest self. And that is not to say we did not raise people's self-esteem and confidence on the show. I believe we did. I really do. But I also think that in a lot of ways, things got repetitive because we were bound to the rules of geometry and trying to make people see their body shapes differently or saying that one thing wasn't as flattering as another thing could be. And we wanted to be able to compare and contrast and show difference. And and that was all very important. But at, at a certain stage, it was less about, okay, are you wearing the right size? Are you defining your waist? Are you wearing a pointy toe shoe? All of those things made sense. But I really believe what the kind of show we would need today is much more about listening to what somebody is telling us they want, listening to what their best version of themselves could look like and helping them get there, having much more participation and input from a guest rather than saying, okay, here's your body type. Here's what you do. Here's your age. Here are all the kind of discernible factors we understand about you. So here are your rules based on that. I wish that it had been much more about what would make you happiest? What would make you feel most beautiful? What would make you feel most free? That's slightly different than where we were. What I love about that that exercise, and when I brought up Isabel and the standards of beauty, like it sounds to me, or in my case, right, it's something that you have to to make it sustainable, do again and again and again over the course of your life, because our bodies change just by time and getting older. And of course, you know, different processes that happen in the body. But I wrote this piece for Refinery29 in 2015 about anorexia nostalgia. And it's still to this day how most people have found me and people related to. And I think even if they didn't have technically an eating disorder nostalgia, like everyone I think related to that essay because I was writing about looking at old pictures of myself or remembering the discipline I had at a certain time, even though I knew it was fucked up and not sustainable or or healthy for me mentally. But because I got a lot of compliments when I was the most sick that I was, right? Because our society is slightly sick. (laughs) Right. Exactly. But every time I change sizes, I often feel like, oh, I just kind of got it together with my style right now. I have like my few outfits that I feel great in. And what I was going to say, the interesting experience I had last week was I'm 32. And I don't know when my mom went into menopause because she had a hysterectomy when I was really young. But my period is changing so much from you know i didn't have it for about 10 years related to what i just mentioned mm-hmm. but now you know i swear i change like a full size <laughs> during the the week before my period and i got to the other end of the week after i was i was done bleeding and i put on an outfit and i felt honestly stacy and i i feel like you will actually fully understand this i felt like a completely new person being in, you know, it's a chicken or the egg thing, being in this outfit that really suited me and I felt really good about. And I was 
more pleasant to be around. I was nicer to people. I was more present. You're always more charming when you feel like you look good. Yes. The things that usually worked for me didn't work for me. And so even doing that, it's more sustainable to be able to do that for yourself on a almost a day-by-day basis because our bodies aren't stagnant. And it's an exercise that you know can be repeated and you mentioned your experience with disordered eating and and yeah. feeling bad about your body and obviously i just love that little tip you gave in passing about you know wearing bright colors and and big patterns when you're not feeling great about yourself but what are some of your thoughts on using style to help feel better about negative body image days or when your body oh, changes oh, yeah yeah it's essential and in fact, last night, I was even saying, you know, it's it's interesting. We were talking, you just asked me about the connection between jumping from style to wellness. Style right. is self-care. Like, let's just be clear. Fashion and following trends, that's about an industry that's built on insecurity, right? If you don't have this, you're not in. If you don't buy this bag or have this mascara or whatever it is. But real true personal style starts with the individual. And the idea that you are combating negative body image, it is essential, one, because you can't always trust your eyes. You can't always trust a reflection in a mirror right? We know that disordered eating really does change the way that you see your body, the way you see other people. It has an effect on your brain. And so it is incredibly important to stick with your body as much as possible, to understand, feel it physically, and also work with it in the most loving possible way. Style does all of that. And you can be any weight and you can still be gorgeous in your clothes. You just have need to know like what makes you happy and what fits you well, right? What doesn't cut off your circulation when you're sitting? These are the things that matter. And that, that is a real form of self-care. If you can really spend time figuring out how you want to express yourself in terms of your personal style, that goes a long way to combating negative body image. And the truth about style, I interviewed and made over nine different women. And the first woman in the book was one who had had a severe eating disorder, very young woman who had become severely anorexic, was hospitalized, gained weight, and just did not feel beautiful anymore. Even though she was gorgeous and healthy, she just could not get past the fact that she was not you know, severely underweight. And we went through a whole exercise asking questions about what was the feeling that she wanted to feel again. If it wasn't about her weight, what would it be? And it was about being powerful and confident and feeling like she could walk into a room and own it. And we tried to translate that, not just through color, but through fabric and silhouette, like giving her this amazing fitted leather jacket and things that really truly felt like armor. And she looked so stunning at the end of this whole day of shooting with her that I just couldn't get over it. And even though that's not going to cure her, obviously, of like disordered eating and thinking about her body, it certainly went a long way to kind of making her see herself in a new light. And that's why it's so visceral, right? This idea that seeing is believing is really shorthand for seeing is believing because seeing means that you can think about something differently. And if you can think about something differently, you can feel 
something different. And if you can feel something different, then you can believe something different. That's what, that's where faith comes from. So this idea that style can play such a visceral role in the way that we feel about ourselves is really actually quite logical. Yeah. Yeah. It makes so much sense. And in your first book with your co-host Clinton, it's more about the shapes and the colors and geometry, which is very important. And then your second book, your book that you just mentioned is about the psychology of fashion. And that's so perfect about the case study that the first one in your, your book is about. And it goes well with something I always say to people in eating disorder recovery is like, throw away anything from that time, like give it away, donate it. Because having it, it really triggers that anorexia nostalgia. And since I don't weigh myself and I don't look at any other markers, how our clothes fit for many of us is... The only way. Yeah. And so it's hard to put something on and it be tighter than it normally is. And you really loved it and you really remembered a good day in it or something. It's jarring. Even if you're not judging yourself, even if you're like perfectly recovered and you're not or just don't have any body image issues, like it's jarring for anyone when something that used to fit doesn't anymore. One thing if, you know, let's say you have PMS and you're bloating and you have a heavy period or something like that, that's different. But this idea that we hold on to a lot of things that, you know, there's the 80-20 rule about closets, right? That frankly, most of the time we wear 20% of our closet 80% of the time and 80% of our closet we wear 20% of the time. So mostly the things that we don't wear are things that we either don't really need, don't know how to wear, or are holding on to out of some kind of nostalgia of what we used to look like in them or some kind of hope that in the future will fit into them, right? But all of those things are psychological torture. And at any stage, whether or not you have been dealing with an eating disorder or not at any point in your life, any clothes that you are holding on to that do not really fit you, that are not, you know, due to a week of bloating or something like that, but really haven't, you haven't worn in a year or you're waiting until you lose that 10 pounds or gain that 10 pounds. All of that is psychological torture. All of those are demons in your closet and your closet should be a place of joy. So I am telling you, I will tell you right now, get rid of everything. The most that I would ever say to hold on to in terms of that kind of either nostalgic or hopeful clothing is one to three pieces if you are actively working to get to the place where you can wear them because then they can become motivators Otherwise, they're just torture symbols. And you do not need any more psychological torture than you have to endure on a daily basis anyway, right? We've got noise pollution, we've got climate change, we've got some of us have shitty bosses. There's a lot going on in the world. We need to make life as lovely and beautiful for ourselves as we can. And holding on to things that no longer serve you is not a way to do that. The thing that comes up for me so much in in getting dressed and which is challenging is choice. You know, we have so many choices that we have to make now. One question I, I have for you about style before we move on to what you're doing now, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this a little bit, but when it comes to dressing for a certain age, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this now and if they've evolved or or oh, where you are with this. Because like I said, I'm in my early 30s and 
even just every morning when I leave, I kind of wear a uniform and I've, I've always kind of been like this. And I used to think it was like, just, I don't feel comfortable in my body or whatever, but like, no matter what size I'm at, and trust me, I've been at so many different ones. I find like the same four things and buy them in a bunch of colors and kind of wear those. And that's, that's what I do. But I feel like I'm at this place where I could kind of dress like I'm in high school or like I'm a, a grandma and anywhere in between is what I see with my neighborhood and my my peers. And I'm curious your your thoughts on that and and how fit fits into that and how trends fit into that. And yeah, just just where your thinking is around that. Well, I definitely think that my thinking has evolved a lot because we had a sign on what not to wear that said no mini skirts over 35, which I don't believe at all anymore. But it was certainly, you know, like everybody loved a good, a hard and fast rule back in the yeah. early on. So I guess that's more what we were after. But, you know, when it, I don't really think so much about age, right? Um, in terms of style, fit is, is paramount. That is the most paramount thing when it comes to style. Fit is essential. The better something fits you, the more it's going to look like it was made for you, right? So even things that are inexpensive, have them tailored because that will wind up probably being less expensive than something really expensive, and yet it will still look great, right? I always say spend as much as you can actually afford on your clothes. Spend as much as you can. And if that means that all you're buying is like great stuff from Target and TJ Maxx, so be it. But just make sure that it's tailored to look like, you know, it was literally made for you. That is, for me, the most important thing. The second most important thing is, what do you want your style to be? What is your deep longing for the way that you want to look like? When you tell me that you basically have a uniform and you buy things in multiples, that's fine if those multiples are things that you love. Like they're four yummy sweaters that feel so soft and they come in gorgeous colors. And so you don't mind having four of them. If you're buying things because you don't know what your style is, or you're afraid to experiment with style, or you think that you don't have the right body for something, then I think you're limiting yourself. Then I think you need to kind of go off and be courageous and go try on crazy things. You don't have to buy them. You just have to push yourself to see that you can do it. And you may find that you actually wind up loving some things more than what you've been doing. I also think at 32, look, you're you're very young. It's almost like 32 is a new phase in and of itself. Your 30s are such a great decade, but it is a real decade of like transformation and evolution. And so where you are now is probably not where you're going to be at 42 or 52. But it means that the best version of the style you're going to have at any age is because you are listening to what you really want. And it does take work. It takes work to be quiet enough to listen and really think like, am I buying things out of habit or am I buying things out of joy? Am I buying things that are baggy because I don't want to show my body or am I making the effort to have clothes fit me well? These are all things that you have to think about. And sometimes, look, you may be like, yeah, I'm wearing oversized clothes. I don't like the way I look and I don't want to deal with it. That is fine. But remember that you are controlling that narrative. And if you are dressing in a way that you are trying to hide yourself because you don't feel good about yourself, you aren't going to fool anybody if you're just wearing, let's say, oversized clothes in black, right? People are going to know that that's what you're trying to do. Now, you may not care about that. 
But I'm just saying you need to be aware of what is going on around you. We do not live in a vacuum. There will always be other people that you want to interact with. We all want to be praised and valued and complimented and loved. And how we take care of ourselves and how we present to the world is a part of that, whether we want it to be or not. I didn't make the rules. I just, I want you to win the game. I'm interrupting this episode briefly to tell you a little bit more about In Process because I'm honestly stoked about it. It's a experiential workshop, a study and what it means to live creatively. What is a creative life? I don't know, but we are going to define it together in this for each of us and hold each other accountable for living it in the way that feels good. It's part class, it's part supportive group, it's part open studio or office hours where we co-work together because I perpetually felt disorganized and overwhelmed and creatively frustrated because I was trying to do so much and not really doing anything at all. My list of ideas grew and I rarely felt the satisfaction of completing any one of them, completing a project. So in 2020, this was my solution to give myself and others accountability and support while we're in process moving through our projects and personally moving through whatever comes up. I believe our feelings inform our actions and then our actions inform you know, what our life becomes. And this is a place for us to hopefully, with the help of the group, feel better. And I think when we can feel a little bit better, we'll take action in the direction that we want to go and we'll define that here together. And it's been incredibly useful to me. And I think we're meant to be in community. So this is really for anyone who wants to feel more connected and less alone, maybe have some more direction and feel a sense of completion and something that we'll define together. The theme this time is focus. This group began in 2020 as a way for me to connect with other people while working and making things separately. We could be together and give each other a little bit of structure within the solitude of making projects. And it morphed to be less about creative projects and more general personal growing and navigating transitions or learning new skills. And you can be someone who works a full-time job or someone who freelances. Many people do both or, you know, like me, have several jobs. We've had a winemaker, painters, someone who worked in human resources. We've had several chefs, several musicians. We had a middle school teacher, a screenwriter. Oh, wow. We had parents of young children. We've had parents of grown children. We've had a mother-daughter pair. That was really cool. Many, many more. If you have a question on whether this would be fun for you, just let me know. Send me an email. You know, the archive has conversations with guests here who taught lessons like actress Andre Vermeulen, architect and interior designer Angie Choi, who teaches about creativity in spaces and clearing space for creativity and feng shui for creativity. We have Jezebel DuPont come in and talk about files and notes on your phone and your inbox. And that was one of my favorite classes. And Heidi, the designer and founder of Osmo of California, she teaches a class. Christine, Maddie, Phoebe, my friend Simi. It's a party in there. 
This week's episode is brought to you by Sprout Living. If you aren't already familiar with Sprout, I have to tell you about their amazing plant-based protein powders. As you probably know, I'm, you know, pretty active. (laughs) I walk a a decent amount and kind of known as a pedestrian and their products really help me to uh, keep walking. Their blends are delicious and they really use quality ingredients. No claims that they're they're quality. They truly are third-party tested. And what makes them different is that they avoid a lot of unnecessary additives. You know, that's like gums and thickeners and it's really great. They only use powerful superfoods and adaptogens and nootropics, which is great because their blends are then multifunctional. So more than just protein powder, this results in more convenience, it's cost saving, and of course it's less waste. And their Epic Protein Collagen Blend, for example, contains all these ingredients that boost the body's natural production of collagen and it tastes so good there's a mindful matcha blend that i particularly like and that's of course great for energy and clarity and memory and focus i really love it it tastes so good you can taste that they really care there's no gross like aftertaste from a sweetener that might be make you feel weird bloated i really love it and i think you will too organic non-GMO, gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, and most importantly, third-party tested. When it comes to something that you're having every day, sometimes maybe more than once a day perhaps, you want it to be something that you picked on purpose and that you're consuming something that you really love. And that's exactly what Sprout Living products do. I've honestly never seen such consideration and attention to quality like I do with these, which is why I feel confident about recommending it to you. They have a bunch of different flavors, and I'm sure you'll find something that you like. I did. Again, I love the matcha one. There's a coffee blend that's really good, a chocolate maca that tastes like a chocolate milkshake. Check them out. Use the code LETITOUT for 20% off your order. Again, that code is LETITOUT for 20% off your order. Thank you so much, Sprout. Oh, I, I just love you so much. <laughs> I One of the things I love about you and admire is your ability to evolve, like you just said, with your thinking and, and grow and try things. And in general and personally and professionally, you became a CEO at 51. And I really want to talk about that. And I want to talk more about state of menopause but ju- just that fact alone and i'm i'm really inspired by timelines and different people's timelines and and shifting our cultural thinking to your point about the decade that that i'm in and you know i entered my 30s April of the pandemic, keep making the joke like I'm doing really great for like a 25 year old. I live in a studio <laughs> apartment. I'm single and I have friends in all different decades. And Katie, but you're doing well. Oh, you're, thank you. You're doing well for you. It, you know, this idea of like you're doing well for being 25, that's funny, but it's also not true. I mean, here you are with this amazing podcast with already a lifetime of experience that has brought you to this point. And that is something to be celebrated. There is always something to be celebrated. This idea that we have, which is such a Western kind of capitalist notion that everything is always supposed to be great. We're always going to be successful. We deserve to be happy at all times is literally the opposite of what life is. 
right? Any Buddhist, any Taoist will tell you that life is suffering. Life is hard. It's funny that we think that we deserve for it to be easy at all, all times. But the fact is, what really makes us great at life and what really makes life worth living is not just infusing life with meaning, but recognizing the gratitude and the beauty in life being hard and difficult, in recognizing the victories that we have in life being hard and difficult. You know, being happy and content is really about making peace with life being hard and difficult. I'm not Mm. reprimanding you, but I do want (laughs) to encourage you to just think about that a little bit differently because you're exactly where you need to be. Thank you. Well, that, I mean, that was my point with all of this is just that like, it doesn't, time really doesn't matter. And 30 under 30, or like, you know, there's still these things mm. that celebrate youth. Seeing you and seeing you become a CEO for the first time at 51, like that is expansive for me. And that, that is really helpful. And, and I really am inspired right now by women and, and people of all genders doing things at at different timelines. I think there are a couple of things to say about that. One, I think on a sociobiological level, we are always going to prize youth, right? Youth equals fertility. And fertility means the extenuation, is that a word? Of the race, right? The continuation (laughs) of the human race. So there, that is built in for a reason, right? We find youth attractive because we constantly want to procreate. We want more humans to exist and evolve over time. That's the first thing. What I don't think is that we have to value it at the exclusion of every other life stage. And I also think that this idea that it's so revolutionary for a 51-year-old to have pivoted from one career to another really shouldn't be because I'm not going to die at 55. I mean, knock on wood, right? You know, against, you know, hoping there's no natural disaster or anything. But this idea that I can live well into my 90s means that I've got almost half of my lifetime still in front of me to limit myself to the thinking that I give up because I've hit menopause, no longer going to have any biological children. What? That means it's over for me? I mean, that would mean that no woman who has stopped menstruating has anything valuable to contribute to our society. And you can look around and see some pretty amazing women doing valuable things after menopause. I used to say I didn't think the playing field would ever be leveled until men could give birth. Now, And that may happen at some point, right? I know that there are medical studies where they're looking at the possibility of uterine implants for trans women. So these are things that may actually one day be possible. But until then, the playing field isn't level. We are always cast because of our reproductive organs and our reproductive processes. We're always put in a difficult position, right? Getting your period is this rite of passage. Congratulations, you're a woman. It's also the beginning of sexuality, right? It's also the beginning of what comes from sexuality, which for women is objectification. What if we thought about menopause not as just this natural transition where your biologically uh, fertile years end, but it becomes about a reclamation of self? a reclamation of self-actualization instead of objectification, that it can still be this amazing period of growth and evolution if we looked at it a little bit differently. And again, this is about minute perspective shifts 
This is not huge other world thinking. This is just slight perspective shifts. And this idea that we don't have anything to offer after a certain age is ludicrous. You know, the the other thing that I was going to say to you, there's this great quote, right? Out of all of the besquillions of atom combinations in the world, no one is made up of the same sequence of billions of atoms that you are, that you, you, and you, anybody listening to this, we are all made up of billions of unique atoms that are not replicable unless we were cloned, which, you know, is a different conversation. That is an amazing thing to celebrate. How can you actually even bother to compare yourself to somebody because there's nobody else in the world like you? So go out and dance, do something fun, celebrate that, right? These are all things that we we forget as we age and we forget to remind ourselves of our unique capabilities and our unique perspectives and our unique understanding of the world and how we can share that with other people. As I said, all of these things about you being unique don't need to make you isolated. In fact, all of our uniqueness built into community is is what makes the world so wonderful. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about how when you were in your 30s or 20s, you weren't thinking about what your 50s or 40s or 60s or beyond would be like much, much less menopause. And, and I I deeply related to that, honestly, until preparing for this conversation or, you know, a, a really close friend of mine, my friend Sasha, she's in her 50s and she was talking about menopause on a podcast episode a couple months ago. And it was the first time I'd ever even thought about it. And my therapist asked me to consider like what I wanted my day to look like when I was 50. I couldn't even see that far. I thought was really interesting. And so can you talk a little bit about that? And then about how you were at this precipice, I think at the beginning of lockdown, where you talk about going into starting this career pivot and feeling a bit lost in between projects. And I'm really interested in that time, like moments of flux and being in the in-between. The first thing for me, I think that was the hardest was that when I left What Not to Wear, I remember thinking, oh God, I'm leaving a job. I didn't think that I was leaving the job. I didn't think that I was leaving a job that would follow me around and that I would be associated with even 10 years after this show has ended. And in a lot of ways, that kind of put me in a box that I couldn't get out of. And as grateful as I am to that show and all of the opportunities that it brought me, I was tired of making people over. And I was tired of dressing people. And I wanted something more. I wanted to do something bigger. I wanted to do another show. I was the executive producer of a a talk show that got sold but never made. And then I went back to TLC to do a show called Love Luster Run because that was about public perception versus personal transmission and trying to make those two things complement each other. And to help people figure out what they wanted to say and do it in a way that was much more digestible and understandable to people. So that was a very important show to me. And I got to executive produce that one. And I really loved it because I had so much more creative control in a way. But after that, which was, you know, that ended in 2016, I thought, well, I'm going to take 2016 off. I'm going to take a year. I'm going to do some traveling and I'm going to decide what I want to do next. 
And I really started to feel a little aimless and a little purposeless. And I couldn't figure out exactly what I wanted to do or where I wanted to be or where I wanted to go. And by the end of 2016, I wound up on an operating table when I had spine surgery. And it was pretty extensive spine surgery. It was about a seven and a half hour surgery. My lower spine is made of titanium plates and screws, rods. And it was right after that, that I I really had like my first kind of confrontation with like a real mental health crisis. And I started to get very anxious. I was crying all the time. I kept saying like the minute, six weeks after my operation, I saw that all that foreign material in my body on an x-ray. I kept saying, I, I feel like something is eating me alive from the inside out. I have all this foreign material in my body and it scared me. And I was having very, very extreme emotional responses. And it turns out that, yes, when you have a surgery like heart, brain, or spine, things that are life-threatening, sometimes your body thinks that it is dying. That can trigger a very extreme emotional response. And that's what I assumed was happening, that I felt kind of paranoid and agoraphobic and very anxious. And that went on for a long time while I finally started to get into physical therapy and I was able to start working out in a way to strengthen my back and my body, which made me feel a, a lot more in control. And as I spent 18 months doing that, as I started to come out of that physical therapy, my father was very sick. And he had been diagnosed years before and they said, you'll be fine until you're not. And all of a sudden he was not. And so he got very sick in March of 2018 and passed away in November of 2018. And as much as I knew that it was coming, and as much as I thought that I was dealing with my fear and the grief and the impending doom of losing him through these kind of physical symptoms that I thought I was sort of mimicking my dad. He had heart disease and I got heart palpitations and he had joint pain and muscle fatigue and I had joint pain and muscle fatigue and he would get a rash and I would get a rash and he would throw up from, you know, not really having organs that were working. It was very hard for him to eat. And all of a sudden I would start throwing up from foods that I used to eat all the time. Food allergies came out of nowhere. Looking back, those two seminal events were the things that I thought my physicality was reacting to. It was actually perimenopause that was probably amplified by the stress and the grief and the trauma, both physical and emotional, of surgery and losing my father. But I really felt so completely out of control, so completely confused, so in, in such a deep need state and not really even understanding what I needed. That honestly, this company was something that became a mission and a purpose because I felt so alone and so isolated. And I didn't want anybody else to have to feel that way. If I was having difficulty finding really reliable information and good product information about like what was out there, I and I have a health profile, so I couldn't take hormones. What was non-hormonal that I could take that would be helpful to me? If I, with all of my access to medical doctors and you know, being very privileged to have a lot of health aid at my fingertips and being able to afford insurance and all of these things, if I couldn't figure it out, imagine the person who doesn't have those advantages. What are they doing? How are they coping? 
And the same thing that I had been thinking about while I felt unmoored and floating around and sort of not knowing what I wanted to do with my career and realizing that I wasn't getting phone calls to be on TV shows anymore and wondering if maybe that was just it for me. I really had to think, well, what is my kernel of truth? What is the thing? Forget about the fact that I've been in fashion. Forget about the fact that I've been in style. What's underneath that? What is my actual skill set? What am I interested? What is my purpose? What is meaning for me? And making people feel when they are in a crisis of confidence that they are going to be okay is what I have always done, right? And hormonal chaos is a crisis of confidence. And what I experienced in menopause was a crisis of confidence. And I needed somebody to tell me that it was going to be okay and that there were options. And that if I didn't look like myself or didn't feel like myself, then I could have agency over how I wanted to manage that. And nobody at that time that I knew of was doing that. And when my friends at ARFA came to me and said, we're starting this brand, we're going to be a brand company and we're going to start a bunch of different brands. Will you be a beta tester for state of menopause? I lost my mind because it was the opportunity for me to really sink my teeth into something and care about the products that were being made for a stage of life that I barely understood. And when they decided they didn't want to be a product company anymore, that they didn't want to build brands, that they wanted to go into technology instead, they were going to sunset the brand. And I thought, oh, whoa, hold up. I just got to this party. I just arrived here. I just found this new sense of purpose in really being able to talk about menopause, in really being able to talk about the difficulty of like midlife adjacencies, right? 45 to 55, highest rate of decreased earning potential for women, divorce, depression. And I don't think that is by accident. I think there is a lot going on in midlife, menopause being one of those things. And how are we making the quality of our lives better at this time in the middle? So I decided to buy the majority share in the company and keep it going. And I thought it does not have to be all of the things that it is right now. In fact, it has to be more. We have to create more content, more education. So really... What started for me as I don't know what's happening to me as my own midlife crisis, I took the bull by the horn, so to speak, and decided I'm not going to let anybody choose what happens to me. I'm going to choose what happens to me. I'm not going to wait for another television show to cast me. I'm terrible with social media. I don't know what my personal brand is. I am going to sink my teeth into something that feels bigger than me, feels bigger than my community feels bigger than anything that I have done before. I want to take something on that is going to affect 52% of the world's population and impact 100% of the world's population. So why not do something in service of other people that is truly still about raising your sense of self-esteem, giving you a sense of agency, giving you choices, and making those choices become educated? So I guess my needs were the mother of invention, right? Necessity was a mother of invention, but it was personal to me. I wanted my personal crisis to mean something, to stand for something. And, And that was really how I got to this place. It was that I didn't want people to choose for me, right? I wanted to be proactive in what my life was turning into. And not just somebody who was once on a show that people still love and remember, 
I wanted my life to be moving. I wanted it to be dynamic again. And the only way to do that was really to make a choice and move forward. And look, I don't know if this is the end all. I don't know if this is the final company or if I'm going to continue to build companies or if I'll do another TV show again. Who knows? But I knew that I didn't want to stand still anymore. And I felt like while I'd been standing still, enough had happened to me to inform where I wanted to take my life next. I'm so happy that this all happened for you as it did. And it's such a great story of that Steve Jobs quote of you can't connect the dots moving forward, only looking back. And it all elaborately, beautifully makes so much sense. And it shows how you don't stay stagnant and are are always growing. And one of the reasons for that is your... And I've heard you speak about this before, your perspective on friendship and mentorship and how it's important to have friends of all different ages and have intergenerational friendships. If you can talk about that a bit and how that relates to menopause and how your relationships with people and different generations have informed you and you've helped them and and they've helped you? I would say that for the most part, I have spent my life started off with all of my friends sort of being my age and they got younger and younger and younger because I didn't get married and I didn't have kids and my schedule became very different than other people's. And when I was working in television, my hours were insane. I could work up to 18 hours a day. So very different kind of life than a lot of friends my age had. And I wound up hanging out with people who were a lot younger than me. And who got younger and younger and younger than me to the point where I felt like I almost had to course correct, like that being around so many young people was distorting my view of myself and my understanding of my age in a way that was sort of making me feel sad. When you have people pretty much exclusively who are in their early 30s as your friends when you're in your late 40s or early 50s. And some of that, sometimes that can be painful because you can look at them and say, oh my God, you know, your whole life is in front of you and mine isn't anymore. And I had to course correct and like reconnect with people who are my age so that I had more perspective and I could be more generous towards my younger friends instead of envying them, right? I mean, that's not the kind of relationship. That's not what anybody wants in a friendship. Don't feel like I have very many friends who are much older than me. And that I miss because I really do believe that I learned so much from having younger friends. It really affected my ability to speak openly. And honestly, I think that I've gotten permission from younger generations because I see how incredibly open younger generations are about who they are and coming to terms with their identity. And I really appreciate that. I've always wanted to do that. I've always tried to talk about tricky maybe sort of uncomfortable things with people. And so I felt like this was like a very natural thing to do. But at the same time, I also recognized, oh, wow, here's also the potential not just to educate people my age, but to make sure that all of my younger friends are not in this crisis when they get here, that they will have all of this information, that they will make choices based on already knowing what menopause is and what to do about it, right? We can start that conversation now so that really we won't have to have these interviews over and over and over again for people to really understand that, you know, what menopause is and what they can, you know, maybe 
understand could be coming in terms of what to expect and what, you know, there are some symptoms you may feel, some symptoms you may not get, but you should know what, what is possible in this realm and under this umbrella. And because there hasn't been enough research done, we can only say with some certainty, like, okay, this is around the age that it happens. And here are some of the symptoms. And here are some potential solutions and to mitigate these issues, right? And all of that is going to change. There are going to be advancements in pharma and science that are going to make menopause even easier over time. A lot of baby boomers didn't talk to us about what was happening. Generations before that did not talk about it. I think that Gen X will be the last generation that will experience that kind of shame and fear and the first generation to really turn on this conversation so that by the time you're in menopause, you will be like, oh my God, I've, I've heard about this for years. I know exactly what to do. That doctors will be more informative, that care practitioners will be more informative, that you'll have companies like mine that are out to educate and provide yeah. you with answers for, you know, whether you want non-hormonal product or you want recommendations for what kind of hormones are on the market. These are the things that we need to be doing. This is this is how we help each other. This is a stage of life that uh, unfortunately anybody with female reproductive organs has had to white knuckle through. And if you can't afford hormones or you don't have insurance, you should not feel like this is a hopeless situation. And not everybody has extreme circumstances. Not everybody has extreme issues in menopause, of course, but we need to think about all of the people who are going to experience this and really start iterating for the ones with the most need. Because when you go down this rabbit hole, you see this is not just about ageism. It is about sexism. It's not just about sexism. It's about racism. It's not just about racism. It's about ableism. And if we are solving for these issues, for the most marginalized in this incredibly stigmatized conversation, then we are actually doing the work for everybody. Then we are really making it a much better conversation and easier one for everybody to have and manage. You've said this before too, but aging is an inevitable process. And yet the language... Anti, right? Anti right. The way you have talked about that really shifted that. I, I completely took that for granted. I didn't even clock that as being oh. problematic until... Ah. I heard, yeah, it was just kind of in the, the dialogue. To me, it's always been in the dialogue and it has always been the weirdest thing to say, right? I mean, I, how can you be against something that is inevitable, that you can use Botox and fillers and get a facelift or a neck lift or uh, lipo or or go to, you know, uh, I don't know, your your favorite resort or whatever it is, you are still going to die. At the end right. of the day, that is the truth, right? And until then, every day above ground is a good one. And if we pay attention to our health, if we pay attention to our self-care, we're going to have freedom longer. That's what I, I so I, I don't love going to the gym. I'm like the least healthy wellness person that there is probably, <laughs> but I did start going back to a trainer and I started going back three times a week. I got my bone density test back. My bones are very weak. I am really at risk for osteoporosis. And I was like, I have got to start strength training consistently. If I had been strength training since my 30s, I would be, my bones would be rock solid. And so it is really important that we think about preventative measures and that, you know, just what your therapist said, what do you think like a day in your life would look like at 50? The fact is you may not know, but you should at least consider 
all of the things that are going to, the transitions that you're going to hit at different milestones in your life so that you can prepare for them in a way that leaves you with the best quality of life possible. My trainer said to me, you need to be working out so that you're not a fall risk, so that as you age, you continue to have independence and freedom. And that really resonated with me. I thought, oh my God, I don't want to be so dependent on people because I didn't take care of myself. You know, at a certain point, of course, yes, we age, we need help, of course. But I want to be as strong and independent as I can possibly be for as long as I can possibly be. And understanding menopause and what happens to us in menopause is actually part of that independence and that freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to ask you this and you mentioned weight training and you you mentioned you had done that in your 30s. But most of the people who listen to this podcast are in their 20s or 30s. And of course, there are people in their 40s and 50s and 60s and and, and older too, but the, that's the majority. And so is there anything in addition to weight training that we should be thinking about in preparing for menopause and just the future in general? I, I think that the reason that I'm very hesitant about saying like take supplements, I mean, calcium and vitamin D, I think after 50 is incredibly important, but really it is the reason I'm so hesitant about saying buy this supplement or buy that supplement Sure, is truly because we are at a real kind of amazing moment in history, right? Where you're seeing a lot of people come out with supplements for different things, whether it's supplements for menopause or supplements for aging or supplements for whatever it is, right? But the fact is science is catching up real fast. And eventually you're going to be able to customize, you will be able to take a blood test and customized supplements for your body's needs, whether you need more vitamin K than somebody else, or you need more vitamin A, whatever it is, is going to be available to you. That's cool. That Oh my God, absolutely. I mean, think of all the tracker kinds of um, tech, right? That is like you can wear an aura ring and that tells you about your sleep hygiene and your heart rate and all of these things that we are able to have um, some agency over by really understanding what's happening to us. That's only going to get bigger and broader. You're only going to find more at-home testing to give you customized um, in, in nutritional, like health benefits and customized supplement benefits. So those are all things to pay attention to. Pay attention to what is sort of the latest in terms of health and nutrition, always. Nutrition, sleep, and exercise are always going to be the tent poles of longevity. There is no question. And then I do believe educate yourself about everything. Educate yourself about everything to do with your hormonal lifespan, right? So everything you learned about your period, everything that you can learn about not just getting pregnant, but what pregnancy is actually like, what happens to your body during pregnancy? What are the risks? What are the benefits? What happens in pregnancy? Because that is also hormonal chaos. What what do you need to know about infertility? What do you need to know about postpartum depression? What do you need to know? Did you know that you would be bleeding for a month after you had a child? And that may not even be due to tearing. Do you know what it's like to have vaginal tearing? Like These are all things that people say to me, I had a baby and nobody told me this, dot, dot, dot. Nobody told me dot, dot, dot. Don't wait for somebody to tell you. Go looking. 
go looking for the most robust kind of information that you can find. And certainly when it comes to menopause, obviously you have to start doing that at 25, but by the time you're 35, yeah, start knowing what is going to happen after your family start. And you may never, you don't mean, you may not want kids or look, you may wind up being um, wanting kids and not being able to have them, you know, for all of the things, all of the possibilities, know, know what is available and what's possible. Know that you may be fertile. And if you're infertile, what you should do about it, right? Or know about IVF, know about IUIs, know about all of the things that are possible in terms of reproductive health. And that includes the end of reproductive health because that is a new stage of life. And it requires a lot more concentration on cardiac, cognitive, and bone health. These are all things that are going to matter to you. And it is really, really hard to be in your 20s or early 30s and think that this stuff is going to matter but boy, do I wish I'd told myself those things then. Oh, yeah. do I wish I'd do I wish I'd spent more time really understanding health then? Mm-hmm. Because now it's scary, right? Now, knowing that I haven't been to the gym in a couple of years and my bone density is really low is is scary. I don't want to be a dependent old woman before my time. I want to stay as strong and healthy and robust as I can. And knowing about menopause affects your menopause experience. The more you know, the more you know, the less afraid you're going to be. And I don't want, you know, somebody clapped back at me on Instagram and said, oh, you're using scare tactics. And I was like, I'm not using scare tactics. I don't want to scare anybody, but I want to prepare you for things that are going to change. And if you know that they're coming, then you can figure out how you want to manage that change. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're giving people agency. Exactly. And we keep whispering, right? Like the change, it's like, it's like whispering cancer, right? Right. This whole thing that we have to be embarrassed about this life transformation or, or any kind of sickness or weakness is really a waste of time. The more we can, you know, and I'm sorry, I'm not, I, when I say sickness or weakness, I'm not talking about menopause. I was saying, you know, we, a lot of people don't admit to being sick. Like when they have cancer, people don't want to admit if they are diagnosed with um, a potentially fatal disease because they think that people will treat them differently or that they could get fired or any number of things, right? And I realized that it is so important for us to talk about things. The more we shine a light on things, the more we innovate for the darkness, the less scary being in the dark is, right? We're not... right. I I mean, I talk about this all the time, right? The the monster under the bed is because your bed is so dark, right? It's so dark under there. The minute you shine a flashlight, you realize like, oh, those are just dust bunnies in my teddy bear. Like, ah, that's not so scary. Yeah. I mean, you're manageable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're talking to the, the, the name of the show is let it out for that very reason, because I believe, you know, what we hold on to hurts us, right? Like if you think about shadow and integrating your shadow, like we all have light and dark. It's the, the, it takes so much energy to manage what we're pushing down. But if we just share it and let it come to the surface, then we can move on, you know, and that energy can be used elsewhere. A thousand percent. And I, and I really believe in, in what you're saying about that idea of sharing. And let it out is not just a question of having that conversation with yourself, right? I think it is very important, as I said, to be self-aware. I realize I have a negative voice that has gotten very strong. It was really during perimenopause where 
I really felt like I lacked a lot of confidence. I, I felt so insecure about so many things and so unsure about my place in the world. And the one thing that I, I will say about that is like, I still have to stop and realize, wow, you have just been beating the shit out of yourself for the last five minutes in your brain without even thinking about it. You're on autopilot and you have to stop and interrupt that voice and at least get another voice in there to put in the boxing ring. Otherwise, you don't stand a fighting chance. It is even more important than recognizing that to be able to recognize when you are, are having those kind of malignant negative thoughts and be able to say, hey, not just to yourself, but to someone else, I am struggling with this. It is important. It is not okay. It is important and necessary to ask for help when you are hurting in any way. You must. It is, it, it's essential. We are not meant to exist alone. And that is why, you know, help is so important. It's yeah. what makes us who we are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, God, I, I love talking to you so much. And I have a million more questions in my copious notes. Can I ask you a couple rapid fires before sure. we end? Okay. I have to ask you about hosting because you're one of the most iconic hosts of all time. And you're incredibly wise and articulate and to give advice to someone I, I know is so, so challenging, but what does being a good host mean to you? You know, certainly on one out yeah. where I felt like I was in my element. That was what I'd sort of trained my whole life to do was talk about clothes and how they fit. And, and certainly even talking about Steve Jobs and connecting the dots backwards, I felt really prepared to do it because I'd really studied psychology and philosophy. And I understood sort of the human condition and what it means to feel good about who you are and how we can change our sense of self-esteem, both outside in and inside out. And I never considered that being a host. Even on the Today Show or, or Oprah or Access Hollywood, when I was doing fashion segments, I didn't feel like a host. I guess the first time I really felt like a host was when I was on the red carpet and interviewing celebrities and, and other people for the first time. Um, and that was really still connected to what they were wearing. So it never felt like I was hosting anything. I guess the next time I kind of felt like I hosted something was being a guest host on The View. And that was very different. I think for me, I felt really out of my element because it wasn't like every quip I could make was about what somebody was wearing. I had to weigh in on other topics and I felt very tentative about being myself because being a host on something like The View, as Joy Behar once famously said to me, if you have any kind of fame whatsoever, 50% of the people already hate you, was terrifying to me. I was like, I don't want anybody to hate me. And even that was even after, you know, having been on a show for 15 years, I still didn't want that kind of ire directed at me. And it was one thing I, I think I could take it about fashion, but I was afraid of people really criticizing me for my political views or things like that. So openly and with social media, people are cruel. People are, are so cruel in a way that I think actually is hard for me. I'm not made of Teflon. I, I do find some comments that people make really, really painful. And I felt that I was very tentative on the view because of it. So 
I don't know that I have any advice about being a host. I, I love the fact that you think that I'm such an iconic one. Um, <laughs> I would never have, I wouldn't, I wouldn't never even have called myself a host. So I, <laughs> so I guess I really have no advice in that. Well, category. I guess I'll, I'll rephrase it then. And what I was going to, what I was going to ask too, is I love your podcast and, and having important conversations. And like we were saying, talking about difficult things and approaching subjects that other people don't and being on the other side of hundreds of podcasts and hundreds of interviews, what makes a good interview or a good conversation to you? One that isn't afraid to go to scary places. And one that isn't afraid to be truthful, even sometimes when the truth hurts. And one that looks for the commonalities in humanity and ways to lift each other up and to speak kind of the same language and to resonate with other people. I think that's what makes for an incredible interview. And also always an aha moment, something that you might not have thought of that is expressed to you in a way that really resonates is is the best part of a great interview. Mm, yeah. I mean, I had so many aha moments in the interviews I listened to you on prepping for this. And one of them came when you were talking about shopping and how you were talking about finance and how shopping became a way for you to not have to be in the reality that you were in when you were mm. unhappy. Mm -hmm. And that was a real aha for me. And it it made me think of makeovers in general. I've talked about this several times on this show and something that I kind of call the coming back from summer vacation or coming back from camp feeling where it's this, who am I going to be after I read this book? Or if I just get this dress or if I just get this house or this partner or whatever, it's like, this will make me... That's what I'm living for. But it takes yeah. you out of the moment that you're in and makeover shows and makeover tropes. You know, I think about Clueless or I think about all of these. I grew up in the early 2000s and tail end of the 90s. And that just seemed, including your show, which I loved and I loved all of these, but they're really in me. And I still do it now. Like a friend will leave town and I'm like, all right, well, when they come back, I'm going to be there and I'm going to recognize me. You know, there's this like culture, but yeah, I would just love if you talk about that myth a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's the myth of the horizon, right? I mean, it is the thing of when you are and, and the time period of my life that you're talking about when I wrote that article for Refinery um, about, you know, sort of mindlessly shopping was when I couldn't walk when I had had spine surgery and I was like lying on the couch for three months before I could start physical therapy. Um, I just didn't want to be where I was. I didn't want to be who I was. And I was really fascinated by Edie Sedgwick at that stage. I was like, I'd done all this research on her and I'd read all these books and I was so fascinated by her style. And I just like, I just started buying big earrings and like, you know, kind of caps and these like cool mini dresses. And I, But did I really want to dress or be like Edie? No, I wanted to escape reality. And it is very easy to see why we have a drug addiction problem in this country. It's very easy to see why we have an alcohol addiction problem in this country. It's very easy to see why we have a lot of people who spend too much money in this country. We are escaping things that are hard. And again, it goes back to that idea that sometimes it is very hard to sit in the now if the now is uncomfortable. And that is part of what we have to learn to breathe and live through without sort of depending on crutches to make things feel like we're either happier or better or more in control than we are. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think this speaks to time, but something else I, I always ask is your greatest lesson on social media or what is your relationship with digital culture and how are you handling your, your relationship to that now? Yeah. I mean, I really hate social media. I'm not going to lie. I I think that if I wasn't running this company, I would have closed all my social media accounts by now. I have no idea what personal branding means. I have no idea how to do it. And I don't care. Um, I care very much about my company. And I care very much that we use education as marketing and that we are able to do that for free on social media. And in a lot of ways that that I think is very helpful. I think it's great for brands. And I think it's important for brands to stand up for things and the causes that they believe in. And we're able to do that very easily on social. But me personally, um, you know, it, it it is that idea that comparison is the thief of confidence and joy. And I was talking with somebody earlier and we were talking about that study that Instagram sort of buried about teenage girls being so depressed. I don't think it's just teenage girls. I think it's everybody. Yeah. I get depressed if I'm on Instagram too long. I get depressed if I see all my friends in Italy or Greece or at a movie premiere or something where I'm not. One, that that's no way to live. And it also takes you out of real life and the moment and the now and what you could be doing that is productive and helpful in a meaningful way in your real life instead of your digital life, right? But I'm not naive. I do think that a lot of this advent of technology and social media has brought about incredible things. I mean, look at the reckoning. Look at what we've been able to do in systemic change against racism and genderism and sexuality and things that really have been boiling beneath the surface. But social media connects us in a way that we can find our people, we can find our tribes. And, you know, that way we feel more connected and we feel more seen and more accepted and more understood. That's the upside of social media is the kind of connections that, you know, Finding somebody to talk to in Alaska when you live in Australia is amazing. That is amazing to me. That is like, it's mind blowing. But the hard stuff is when we start to manufacture our lives for the delight or, uh, uh, you know, opinion of others. And, you know, it's like, if, did it happen if you didn't post it on Instagram is is a little or TikTok or whatever the latest platform is, be real. Um, you know, to me, it all feels it all feels forced and it all feels like we are getting further away from who we are really. And I remember years and years ago, I gave a talk at Cosmopolitan to a bunch of college grads. They had just graduated. They're all like 22, 23 years old. And I think that um, everybody at Cosmo at that time was a little disappointed in me because I thought, I think they thought I was going to talk about like, what are the best leather leggings to buy? And, you know, which, which is the best liquid eyeliner? And really, I talked about social media. And I talked about the things that I think that we are losing because of social media. And one of them is what is true authenticity. And now I think, again, I gave this talk in 2015 or 2016. So this was quite a while ago. But the idea that there are people who are not just using filters or fillers or Botox, but are taking a thousand photographs until they find the perfect one to post. And that's the only one we see. It's not necessarily what they actually look like. It's the picture that they chose to represent themselves, right? So in some ways, we're losing authenticity by being so preoccupied with what our digital image is like. 
And another thing that I think that we're losing is discovery. It used to take effort to figure things out. We didn't have Google when I was growing up. We had to go to the library. We had to look things up in encyclopedias, right? And in some ways, not knowing something I think is really wonderful. But in other ways, I think discovery is about the journey of learning something, the process of learning something that's all been taken away by being able to look up anything on Google or Wikipedia or IMDb or any other information platform, CNN, any news channel, right? So it's taken away from the effort of learning in a way that makes learning more meaningful. And I think finally, it's changing our relationship to intimacy. If you treat people like you can swipe right or swipe left on them, it's basically like disposable fashion, right? It's like fast fashion, but we're treating people that way. I've never been on a dating app. I don't know what it's like to have a text conversation before I see somebody's face or hear somebody's voice. And to me, that's a very different way of relating to a person. And the fact is, you don't release oxytocin in your brain from swiping right, you release it from a hug. Intimacy is changing in a way. And I realize that technology, obviously I'm not naive, technology has forever changed the way that we exist in the world. We do not have linear lives anymore. We are not living by the industrial revolution style of family unit. And we go to work and we come home and we take vacation and we cook and all of the things. Now we can order food from anywhere and we can date on apps and we can work remotely and things are going to change permanently. Soon we may all be like sleeping in our chairs and living in a metaverse. I don't know. But what I do know is that Our biological brains and bodies were not made for this kind of technology this quickly. I do know that our brains see more images in one news cycle than our grandparents saw in their lifetimes. That affects the way our brains are going to grow and how younger generations are going to perceive things like authenticity, discovery, and intimacy. And Maybe I'm the one who's going to grieve the the loss of those things in the way in which we've known them. And younger people won't because they won't have known them the way that I have seen them change. Who knows? But it is hard for me to watch. And it is hard for me to know that some of what we're headed to in a digital world won't be very healthy for us. It's complex and nuanced. I think about that all the time. You know, we just are over 400 episodes of this show and I wow. and we've just me but but I think I was 22 when I started it and I don't think my great grandmother great great grandmother like knew 400 people like in her circle much less spoke to them much less all the listener you know it makes our worlds bigger in some ways that are really great like you spoke about and and ways that are maybe not so good and anyway we got to protect ourselves from it all the best we can. So thank you. you Look, I think we need to protect ourselves and we also need to evolve, right? There's a lot of things I'm saying that about what I'm going to grieve that a 14 year old is not going to care about when, when she is my age, right? I mean, 
they may experience something completely different. And that's the thing. Like when we hear about young kids who like go up to the TV and swipe it, it's because that's all they know. So you can't really grieve something that you didn't experience. And I think that's another interesting thing about my generation. And maybe every generation goes through this to some extent. But I think Gen X really stands on the precipice of like true evolution in terms of growing up born with rotary phones to the fact that we have many computers in our back pockets today is a pretty significant tectonic shift in terms of civilization. And to be part of this generation is fascinating because of it. I had a good conversation with my really close friend here is also Gen X and and we were talking with with another person in his generation. To me, I look at them and I'm like, you guys have the best music. You didn't have so like I think you have like the best culture. I think the 90s culture I just really enjoy. But to your point, I had Facebook in high school, but I also had a flip phone and now I have a computer in my back pocket. You know, like mm-hmm. it's, I had a little bit more of like a dock to get to the lake, but it's still, you, you know, still a transition. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like, it's, I still remember not having the internet and the internet that I had is very different than the internet that people growing up now have. So again, I am very much a believer in. For every pro, there's a con. And for every con, there's a pro. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like there's, there are always two sides to a coin. So what does that look like? You know, what does that mean? What that means is we try and amplify the pros of technology and really try to manage the cons. And again, this is like, this is part of everything that we do in life, right? It is really interesting to be 53, to have been born in 1969 and for it to be 2022 feels like a really weird stretch of time to have been alive. And I remember I could not have been more than four or five years old. And I was sitting in Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village. And I was sitting with my grandfather and I would spend most of my weekends with my grandparents. And I I was with my grandfather and we were sitting right by the fountain in the middle of the park. And I said to him, what do you think it's going to be like in the year 2000? Right. And this was in what, 1974, maybe 73, maybe. And he said, Oh, Stacy. And meanwhile, while I'm sitting there, I'm looking around and I'm thinking in my head, we're going to have flying taxis and we're going to, you know, I mean, like all these crazy things. And he was like, you know, I think some things will be really different, Stacy, and some things will really be the same. And the funny thing is, is I don't think he would recognize the world today. I don't think he could fathom that we have FaceTime. That was what Mm -hmm. you saw on Star Trek. You know what I mean? So there are some things that are just so remarkable in the fact that they've been created. They are so astounding that even though they have a downside, there's still so much to celebrate in terms of like what evolution looks like, whether it's technology or style or work on ourselves, right? The acknowledgement of evolution, I think, is what's so fascinating and what makes life worth living. Yeah. And who knows? I hope we do this again sometime. And we'll probably be talking about like the wildness of, you know, even just thinking how I said at the beginning, you know, listening to conversations from two years ago feels really dated now because of how, how quickly thing. I mean, part of that is just the wildness of the last couple of years, but even a, a pre 2016 conversation feels like, wow, you have no idea what's coming. You know, there are some things that you can't help but like place things in time. And I know every every decade has that, but yeah, it just feels like it's moving quite quickly. 
Oh, it's, I mean, it feels like it's moving faster and faster. And that's another thing, you know, you perceive time differently as you age. Things feel faster. I mean, I remember as a little kid, summers lasted forever. And now this summer, just like literally I blinked and it was over. Yeah. I I moved quite accidentally from New York to here to LA and not having seasons is very disorienting. I didn't notice oh, it, it the, the first time, the first year, but now that I've been here going on three or something too, since the pandemic, I really feel like I, I am in my twenties still. Like, I feel like I haven't moved from when I got here. It's, it's wild. Well, I mean, I always felt like I couldn't live in LA because the weather is so nice that I would never get anything done. It's true. Yeah. I think it is. It is tough. Well, speaking of, I mean, I, I truly want to talk to you forever. And as you know, I have more notes, so I, I hope you do come back, but really you're, you're such a delight and I, I admire you so much. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you took all this time and as I said, the name of the show is is Let It Out. So is there anything that you wish that I would have asked you about? Anything you're excited about? Anything that oh you want to share I'm about right now? I'm excited about so many things. <laughs> but I think the thing that I'm probably most excited about is that um, on October 18th, which is World Menopause Day, State of Menopause is joining uh, 15 other menopause companies to sit at a summit and discuss all of the issues that surround kind of the biases and the prejudice and the ignorance and the um, disinformation and miseducation around menopause and how we move that needle. I reached out to all of these CEOs. Most of them are Gen Xers. And I realized something that, you know, we have all grown up being taught to compete. That was what we were taught. Never let anybody see you sweat, right? You know, look like a duck, like be unruffled on top and paddle like hell underneath. Never let anybody know that something is wrong. Never show any weakness. And here I thought, oh my God, what if we could show the community that needs us most that we put collaboration above competition, that we are going to put that consumer above each of our individual needs as a company and come together to create something bigger and better for them. And I could not be more proud that we are pulling that off. I love that. Well, congrats and congrats on everything that you've been working on and and that you've done so far and that you will do and who knows what you'll do next. I'm just excited to to see it and and get to be your friend and and follow along like I have since I can remember. <laughs> so, right. thank Aww. you so much and I'm truly so grateful that that you did this show. Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me. This was so lovely. And I'm, I, I know that I would love to come back because I feel like we didn't even scratch the surface. We did two hours. I know. I know we really didn't. It was, it was incredible. Well, we always end letting out a, a sigh, letting out a deep breath together. So do you oh, have yeah. time? Yeah. Okay. Inhale. Let it out. <sighs> we did ah. it. Wonderful. Thank and I you want so you to know, much. I just pulled up your article on anorexia nostalgia on uh, Refinery to read it because I'm just so interested in your writing because it looks beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. Well, you know, that was that was years ago now. And I, I hope to write something again soon, you know, in the same vein or, or a big update to that because there's been so many twists and turns. But gosh, that means so, so much to me. Thank you. (laughs) It is really my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. That was my conversation with icon Stacy London. 
I hope you liked it. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. Truly, it means so much to me. And, you know, I, I put that ad in there about in process, but if you want to be part of it, you can join at any time. I would love to have you. If you have any questions, let me know. We meet twice a month and we do open studio office hours time where we do two Pomodoro techniques together. It's a productivity technique and we rest together and we get done the tasks that we have all been procrastinating and we move each other forward with that. And we go through, you know, my outlook on the creative process, which is first creating space and then gathering, taking in inspiration and experiences, and then trying, like throwing things at the wall, seeing what sticks, and then eventually sharing in some way. And then we do it again and it's cyclical and seasonal. And like I always say, if you like this podcast, you'll probably like it. If you hate this podcast, hard no for you. Again, I am just really grateful that you're here and that I got to talk to Stacey London. Let me know if you listened to the end. Let me know your thoughts on this. If you learned something, you know where to find me. I'm around. You can email me. I am at Katie Dalebow on Instagram and let it out. Let it out with three T's on Instagram. Also me. And if you're not already getting the let it out letter, it's just my newsletter. Feel free to sign up. Last week was a conversation with Courtney Marie Andrews after a long break, but I loved that she's a musician and a poet. If you didn't listen and want to go back, feel free. We took a long break, not by choice. We just didn't have any sponsors, to be honest with you. But we are back, and next week there's an episode with author of the brand new brilliant book, Bad Thoughts, Nada Alec. I will talk to you then, but in the meantime, if you want more of my voice somehow, I don't know why you would, but if you do, my second podcast, my show with Serena Wolf, Spiraling, is back. We're releasing new episodes, and this is season four, so that is, you know, wherever you listen to this podcast. All right, love you, and talk to you there, or elsewhere, or next week. Have a great week, and thank you again so much for being here.